This is Rob Long with Martini Shot for the Ankler. Someone asked me this week if I was reading. That's, that's how we put it. Are you reading? And at first I thought it was like when people ask if a child has learned to read, is she reading yet? To which every single parent I've ever known has answered, even if the child in question is six weeks old, oh yeah, she's reading. I mean, you could probably walk around the newborn ward in any hospital and ask new parents still in their OR scrubs if their child is reading yet and hear something like, well, not quite reading, but recognizes the words on the page. And also they're telling us that our baby is gifted. I mean, we didn't ask. It's just something the experts are saying. But the person who asked me if I was reading knows, I hope, that I know how to read, but was asking rather if I was reading scripts yet. I know the whole town is shutting down for the summer and no one is reading, he said, but I was wondering if you may still be reading. Reading what, I asked. Scripts for development, he said, projects you might want to take under your wing. Now, I never know quite how to answer this kind of question because it means unpacking all of the layers of misunderstanding. I mean, in the first place, I don't really do that. I mean, I'm not an operation. I don't have a production company. I'd like one. If you know anybody who has some extra production company to pass around, let me know. But I'm pretty much a one-guy situation here. And in the second place, when I do read scripts that agents or managers send me to think about, I mean, I do it all year round. I'm, I'm always sort of available. Unlike, as the person asking me if I was reading has clearly noticed, the entertainment business as a whole, which is always looking as a collective mob, as a big blobby organism, for reasons to push things down the road a bit, to delay any action, to operate only in an atmosphere of frenzied chaos when everything and everyone is in a sudden rush. Now, it's not like the people in the entertainment business are lazy. They're not even really procrastinators in the classic sense. What they are... Now, wait, let me rephrase that to be more honest, what we are is afraid. We're afraid of our own decision-making process. We're afraid we'll choose the wrong project, we'll like the wrong script, we'll produce the wrong show, we'll close a deal on bad terms. So we do what people do when they're not totally confident. We wait until it's almost too late, the very last minute, to make any concrete moves. That's why deals tend to close on Friday night around 7 or 8 p.m. And that's why pilots get ordered and cast and produced in eight weeks. That's why my friend said, I know the whole town is shutting down for the summer and no one is reading. I mean, we're not not reading. We're just letting things go a bit. We're running down the clock. We're waiting until the room fills with smoke and the alarms are sounding before taking any action, because then we can say if we blow it and make a mistake, hey, it's not my fault. We only had a day or so to get it done. I mean, no wonder it's a disaster. Don't blame me. And that's one of the reasons why we love to go on vacation, because physical distance can add more opportunities to introduce delay into the process. Now, this is hard to believe, but it is true. Not too long ago, and when I say not too long ago, I'm saying it from the perspective of someone who remembers some very, very old things, like that there used to be two gas stations on Montana Avenue in Santa Monica. This was before someone invented the $200 candle. But really, seen from the perspective of, say, the age of the Earth, not too long ago, on the front page of Variety, they used to list the physical comings and goings of well-known Hollywood figures. Really. There was a box with a column for New York to L.A. and another for L.A. to New York. And I don't know if they bothered to list any other cities. I mean, there wasn't one for L.A. to Oklahoma City, I guess, or New York to 
Eugene, but that wasn't the point anyway. The point was, this was the way most people in the business knew who was in town, and more importantly, the way people in the business let everyone else know that they were available for meetings, that they were reachable. It mattered back then where you were. I mean, it's inconceivable now, really, when it doesn't matter where people are, thanks to phones and Zooms. I mean, once I did a conference call while walking the dog. As the studio executives delivered their notes, my dog delivered something else. I juggled the phone, the leash, the plastic bag. It was a complicated business, so I put the phone in my shirt pocket. But when I bent down to, you know, scoop, the phone fell out of my pocket and into the steaming pile where it stuck out like one of those wafers they used to put in ice cream at old-timey ice cream places. I stayed on the call, of course. I mean, thank God for Bluetooth, right? Which I'm here to tell you, by the way, allows you to be almost 20 feet from the actual phone. But the minute the call was done, I scooped it all up, phone included, and I threw it into the garbage, still on, and I went directly to the Apple store to get a replacement because, you know, I have to be reachable, even when walking the dog. Now, when you send an email to someone on vacation, you often get a rather smug and self-satisfied auto-response, something like, I'm on vacation for the next two weeks and unable to respond to emails. If this is an emergency, please contact my assistant. But we all know that that person with the outgoing message is, in fact, getting their emails. I mean, anyone organized enough to compose and activate that kind of auto-response message is a connectivity freak. That kind of person wouldn't dream of missing a single message. Now, I'm about to spend two weeks on an island floating off the eastern seaboard, surrounded by family, but not surrounded by reliable cell phone coverage or super-fast internet access. And for the high-powered bankers and lawyers that swarm around that island in the summer, this is a very bitter pill to swallow. I mean, they're stressed-out, uptight business dudes in ridiculously fashionable casual clothes, barking into invisible AirPods. Really, it looks like they're just shouting into the air. Can you hear me now? What about now? Can you hear me now? What about now? They tap onto their useless iPhones, contort themselves in all sorts of shapes and positions, trying to capture the strongest signal. I mean, they don't want to be in the office, but they don't want to be out of the office either. So they've chosen the next worst thing. They are on a beautiful island next to a postcard beach, but their faces are locked onto the flickering bars of their smartphones, reaping none of the benefits of a vacation, relaxation, renewal, time with friends, family, scenic beauty, and none of the benefits of a workplace, telephone service, web connectivity, someone who you're allowed to yell at. For the record, I don't have an outgoing message, mostly because I don't get that many messages. Anyway, my low-status working writer's method of dealing with most of those things is to ignore them for a day. Because most of the time, whatever it was that was so urgent is automatically downgraded during the day. So by the time I'm in the mood to respond and in a place with plenty of coverage, whatever it was has magically solved itself. Last year, though, I did get an urgent call. My producing partners and I had been trying for weeks to get a project off the ground, and as luck would have it, we needed to talk to the studio that day, that minute, no delays allowed. So there I was, in shorts and a t-shirt, racing to the top of a sand dune for better reception. I mean, I knew that was the place to run to because there were six or seven people already up there marching up and down and shouting and tapping out emails. And in a few moments, I saw the bars on my phone line up, And I placed the call, and I stood in the hot sun, mostly, of course, on mute, to hear that our project was not going forward. Now, down below on the beach was vacation. Up there on the dune was something else. Some of us talking softly into headsets, some tapping on keyboards, some just listening silently, 
and all of us hopping around a little bit, barefoot on the scorching sand. We looked like one of those irritating avant-garde dance troops. The six or seven of us paced the dunes like lost souls, caught in the hot, sunny limbo between vacation and work and failing, frankly, at both. And all of us, I know, had out-of-the-office messages on our email accounts. But that's what being reachable means. It means you're always available to get the bad news. This, I think, is a business mistake. I mean, being reachable can cost you money. Um, Now, a a first-look deal is a deal between a producer or writer-producer and a studio or network that stipulates essentially that in exchange for a certain sum of money, the producer or writer-producer guarantees the counterparty, in this case the studio or the network, that they'll have first dibs, an exclusive first look on any project or script that the other side comes up with. What it doesn't specify, of course, is exactly what a look is or what first means or how exclusive Back before this business was as transparent as it is, and I'm not saying it's transparent, I'm just saying that these days, deal points and salaries and onset behavior and fairly arcane financial details are out there, reported on. But back before this was true, not too long ago, it was possible and frankly easy to get away with a lot of stuff. For instance, if you pitched a project to a network or studio and they didn't buy it in the room, you got in your car and you drove back over the hill or to another potential buyer, but you were in a little car capsule. You were totally cut off from anyone else. Even in the early days of cell phones, we didn't even call them cell phones. We call them car phones because they were installed in your car and only your assistant could get to you. Email was still just something that your college friends on Wall Street had. Now, of course, it's a lot more efficient. We have cell phones and email and better or worse, depending on how you see things. Everyone in the business has the cell phone number or email address of everyone else, which means no more capsule, no more bubble. No more being unreachable or out of touch or out to lunch or in the canyon. So when you leave the studio or network after the pitch, there's huge email traffic between the next place and the first place and the assistant, the VP at the place after the next place and your agent and agent's assistant slack to the assistant to the VP at the studio who is listening in on a conference call between you and your studio partner. I mean, it's just a huge electric tangle of lines and cross-traffic information, and everyone knows everything there is to know in seconds, which is sort of cool if you're in the commodities trading business or the cancer-curing business, I guess. But in show business, all of the old inefficiencies like phone tag and lunch hour, late-day call returns, the unreachable hours spent in traffic, all of that added up to a foggy, confusing atmosphere of ignorance and delay. In other words, opportunity. Because the enemy of every salesman, no matter what it is he or she is peddling, is a fully informed customer. Now, back in the golden days of show business before email and cell phones, one of the most successful television producers in history, really a legend of the business, somehow managed to maintain a first-look deal, an exclusive first-look deal with two networks at the same time, while also having an exclusive production deal at a third network. All three assuming, I guess, that everyone agreed on what first and look and exclusive meant. And because in those days, everyone spent half of their day in the car or at lunch or was otherwise unavailable, and because assistants didn't have computers and email and Slack, nobody ever found out. Years later, when the producer had been enjoying his insanely rich retirement, someone once asked him about all of those mutually exclusive, concurrent deals. What was the plan, he was asked, if, you know, he somehow managed to sell the same 
project twice or worse, three times. He shrugged. I was worried about that for a while, he said, but I just kept kicking that can down the road. I would worry about it when the time came. And it never came. Worry about it later. Kick the can down the road. Sounds like a recipe for chaos and lawsuits and terrible rushed decision-making. But it also sounds like how every single hit has ever been made. So maybe not a bad model for this business and probably a lot of other ones too. I mean, we're all so in touch, so fully informed. We've forgotten just how effective and successful this business was when we were unreachable when we didn't know everything. I mean, maybe that's why everyone in show business just instinctively delays making decisions. Because deep down, we know there's nothing more efficient than inefficiency. And that's it for this week. Next week, we do not get bitter. For The Ankler, this is Rob Long with Martini Shot.